Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Hobbes, Plato, and the inevitability of the state. So the focal point here is on why a couple of these very classic political theorists think that we need a state. And part of what's prompting me to want to start with this is that most of the time when I teach Hobbes, students will just say in their papers, well, Hobbes had a very pessimistic view of human nature because he lived through the English Civil War, and that was a a bad time, and that gave Hobbes a negative view of people. And then they move into why Hobbes thinks that we need a state. There won't always be a whole lot of explanation for why precisely Hobbes thinks that human nature is conducive to a state of war of all against all that that necessitates a state to create and maintain order. And because people tend to not be so good at that bit, I think it's worth exploring here. So to, to start with Hobbes and then we'll we'll get to Plato. Yeah. The main causes of trouble for Hobbes, there are a number of them. So to start There's this problem of subjectivity for Hobbes. The fact that we're all in different bodies that are separate from each other, right? So Mm -hmm. if I'm eating a hamburger, Edmund doesn't get to enjoy the hamburger. He's not nourished by the hamburger. His body is a separate body cut off from my body, which means me eating a hamburger is something I experience is good for me, but it it doesn't necessarily do anything for Edmund. Maybe Edmund has some empathy for me because he likes me and he likes seeing me enjoy eating a hamburger, but it's not the same as Edmund himself getting something to eat, right? That's the problem of, of subjectivity for Hobbes. We're all in separate bodies. We don't pool experience. We don't all share pains and pleasures. And that means that someone else's pain, someone else's pleasure doesn't count the same to me as my own. The second issue is scarcity. So there are only so many hamburgers out there and we can't all get a hamburger. And even supposing that you met a certain scarcity standard, you know, say that we have enough food for everybody to eat. There's still other things that human beings tend to want that are necessarily scarce. So, for instance, some people want to be cool or they want to be well-liked. Well, the thing about being cool is that only some people can be cool because the nature of cool is that it's relative. You have to be cool relative to other people. You have to be higher status than other people to count as high status. So a lot of the things that human beings tend to want are things that are not stuff that everybody can have. Uh, And even if it is stuff that everybody can have because it's a material product like food, there tends to not be enough of it for everybody to have it. Right? So that's the, the problem of scarcity. And another problem is, for Hobbes, 
natural equality. Hobbes thinks that human beings are all roughly equal in one particular sense. He thinks that everybody has some level of offensive capability versus everybody else. That means that any given person could kill any other given person. It might not be a fair fight or an even match, but any given person could if the circumstances were right and they tried really hard, find a way to murder anybody else. And that gives everyone reasons to be afraid of each other because if we are in a competition for stuff that's scarce and we know that we don't all experience other people's suffering as if it were our own, then that means that there are going to be people out there who might be willing to make us suffer so that they can get the things that are scarce and it, it doesn't have to be the case that everybody's like this. People think that Hobbes thinks that everyone is a terrible person. No, no. It only needs to be the case that some people, even a small number of people, just occasionally, just very rarely, act this way. Because if even just a small number of people act this way, then you're going to be afraid when you encounter people that they might act this way. So think about how often we talk about crime and how often people worry about being murdered or, or being robbed or going out at home late at night. And if you look at the crime statistics, they're a lot lower than they were 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, right? People are a lot safer than they used to be. But it's still the case that people are often afraid, are often worried that people that they encounter in a dark alley late at night might hurt them. And it's not the case that most people or even very many people would hurt you if they met you in a dark alley late at night. But if you hear just one story in the news or on TV of somebody getting hurt by another person late at night in a dark alley, that might make you worry a little bit. And if you're worrying about that, then you've got an incentive if you meet someone that you think might cause trouble to you to cause trouble to them first and to act preemptively. George W. Bush calls that you know, the doctrine of preemptive war, right? To go after somebody before they can go after you. And so from these larger ontological causes, these deep, deep fundamental issues with our world, you get Hobbes's three causes of conflict, competition over scarcity, diffidence, which for Hobbes is the inability to know other people's intentions. You can't know if someone you meet is the sort of person who would hurt you in a dark alley. And they can tell you uh, that they're not, but you can't be sure. And glory. Glory is, is trying to intimidate other people into leaving you alone before they uh, think about hurting you. And if you notice, there's a language issue in this that's quite important, because for Hobbes, the fact that we can't trust things other people say is a big part of why we have diffidence. And that mistrust is due to the fact that when we are reporting to people what's going on in our brains, they're separate people from us. They don't live inside our heads. So they can't know if the words we're using to describe what's going on in our brains 
are true. Now, it's not just that people can lie about what's going on in their own heads. Language is hard. People are bad at language and bad at explaining themselves. So very often, even if we're not trying to lie, we will still misrepresent to other people what's going on in our heads with our words, either because we'll misdescribe what's going on in our heads or because they'll misinterpret what we say. So that problem of language compounds the problem of subjectivism. And then when you add to that the fear that we have because everyone else has got some level of offensive capability and the goods in life are scarce, that confusion about intention becomes a very significant basis for preemptive aggression. And if only a small number of people buy into this logic, you're at a big disadvantage if you don't. If you go around assuming that nobody's ever going to hurt you and a small number of people are willing to hurt you, then you end up in big trouble. Uh, those are the, the main thrusts of it. I, I would also briefly explain uh, when Hobbes talks about glory uh, as a basis for conflict, he's talking about the demonstration of power to intimidate people into leaving you alone. And he distinguishes glory from vainglory. So vainglory is an attempt to demonstrate power, but it's one that backfires by making you uh, look like, a, like someone who ought to be dealt with. So for instance, uh, one of the stories I like to tell students is, is let's say I kidnapped somebody and I, I, I kidnapped uh, an undergraduate student and I dragged them to the middle of the Sidgwick site, which is where at Cambridge we have all of the humanities classes. And I, I took out a big sword and a bullhorn and I said, I am the king of the Sidgwick site and no one shall trespass here. Okay. And I you know, sliced them open with a giant sword and threw their intestines all over the place and covered my hands in their blood and wrote my name on all the buildings, right? How would people react to that, assuming that there's no state and they can't call the police? Well, they might be intimidated by me and want to avoid the Sidgwick site from then on. And if that happens, then what I did was glorious from Hobbes's standpoint. It was an effective demonstration of power, which intimidated other people into not messing with me. But what if instead they go, wow, this guy is really depraved and mad and he's a problem and we need to band together and find him and get rid of him. If they do that instead, then my action was vainglorious because it instead attracted negative attention to me. So you see how glory versus vainglory is very much a matter of how it's perceived by the people you're interacting with. It's not that any particular action is inherently glorious or vainglorious. It's the way it is perceived. Okay? So this is why Hobbes thinks that there's conflict. And if you go through these different bases, it's kind of hard to argue with each of them individually. But people don't like the conclusion all the same, right? It's hard to argue that we are not in separate bodies. You know, that subjectivism, that the, uh, that the kind of subjectivism that Hobbes is talking about is not true. It's hard to argue that we don't all have some offensive capability, you know, or, or very nearly all of us, some level of ability to hurt each other. It's hard to argue that there are very many human goods that aren't scarce, you know, or, if, or that there are enough human goods that aren't scarce 
for us to not fight over anything. Because even if we got past scarcity from a material standpoint, a lot of people are, to some degree or another, worried about status and, and worried about their social position relative to others. Uh, and these things are, are hard to imagine. But you could imagine a scenario where the world wasn't like this. If we all lived in a kind of hive mind where we pooled all of our experiences so that anytime you hurt anybody, you experience their pain as if it were your own, you know, that would probably very much decrease the chances that other people would hurt you to get stuff from you. you know, if we got rid of the subjectivity of experience and we were all one interconnected body, that would probably change the game. It would also probably change the game if scarcity was not a constraint, if it was genuinely the case that all the things that everybody wanted were things everybody could have without having to take them from anybody else. And it would also probably change the game if we didn't have natural equality in Hobbes's sense, if some people were incredibly powerful, such that they were untouchable by everybody else. That would very much change the way that human beings interact. And those people who are untouchable would not have to be afraid of anybody else. But you see how in, in all of this, fear is the driving thing, and the fear is created by these central features of the world. And these central features of the world, it's very hard to imagine how we would get out of them, how we would escape them. And whenever you describe a scenario where they don't exist, it sounds a little bit like some kind of science fiction. Mm. That all sound about right to you, Edmund? Yeah. I think I would agree that subjectivity, scarcity, and natural equality for Hobbes are what justifies, uh, motivates, and requires the formation of uh, what Hobbes called a leviathan, uh, a state. I think one of the questions about, perhaps not necessarily about uh, scarcity. I think we'll talk about natural equality um, versus its opposite when we're talking about Plato. But perhaps one question with subjectivity is the extent to which when Hobbes says we are subjective and in separate minds, whether this is something that directly entails the kind of raw, uh, rational egoism and non-rational forms of egoism that Hobbes is talking about, or whether subjectivity can, under some conditions, lead to, um, or be made to lead to non-egoistic behaviour outside the state, or before the state, and Hobbes, of course, would suggest that that's not the case, that without a state um, in the uh, powerful sovereign sense he's intending, you can't get people to cooperate with each other. But of course, for lots of writers... At least not at scale. Yeah, yeah that, that's the thing. So yeah, I was about to say that. that you you can get them to do it at, on a kind of ad hoc basis, on the basis of empathy networks, on the basis of sentiments, right? Yeah. You know, Hobbes will talk about tribes or families existing in a kind of pre... You know, in a kind of state of nature where there's some level of, of ad hoc cooperation. But the thing is, because it's just based on sentiment and based on empathy... 
whenever you have people who are a little bit weaker in that empathy, then you won't get that cooperation. And human empathy is a bit limited. I, I remember that that Malcolm Gladwell book from a while back, uh, making reference to what they call the rule of 150, the idea that you can only really, as a human being, think of something like up to 150 people as as real people, as as full human beings, before they start to just become archetypes or stereotypes of other people. Uh, and so it's difficult to build a really big pure empathy network. And it's difficult to trust, even if someone is acting like they do have that that capability, because it, it only takes a small number of people who don't act altruistically to cause trouble. So I would say for Hobbes, it's not that nobody uh, ever behaves cooperatively. Many people might even behave pre- predominantly or even exclusively cooperatively. It only takes a small number of people who are willing to try to take advantage of the fact that they have offensive capability and that you might not be willing to respond in kind. Yeah, and I guess that that's perhaps why the only societies which can exist over the long term without some kind of uh, political uh, division of powers might be uh, hunter-gatherer societies that are fairly small scale because as populations increase, you do tend to need to come up with ways of getting people to join states with some degree of hierarchy in them. Yeah, people start needing, as, as the scale of the society gets bigger, you're trying to get cooperation when you don't have those personal ties. And that tends to lead people to look for some kind of impersonal structure or institution, which can create a tie where a sentiment might not be able to do the trick, where there might not be enough you know, people who know each other well enough to create that sense of trust. Think about if you are living in, in a town or a city like Cambridge with 100,000 people, you can't possibly know everybody that you meet. And what's your basis for trusting people? Well, you don't trust everyone because sometimes you're in a dark alley and, and you're scared of, of strangers that you meet at night in the town in which you live. But for the most part, you trust people in your town. And it's not because you know them and it's not because you know they're nice, they're nice people. Insofar as you trust them, a lot of it has to do with there are some laws that do theoretically constrain their behavior. Uh, but even in the presence of those laws, a lot of people have deep trust issues with other with strangers that they meet. A lot of people are worried that you know if they go out on a date with someone that that person might behave in an appalling way, in an illegal and appalling way. So that fear that other people might not treat you well even in your hometown, in your home community, is a real fear, even in a world where there's laws and some level of social order. So you can imagine a scenario where you don't have that, where you don't have any uh, overarching structure to which you can appeal. It's, it's a scary kind of place. And the example of, of you know, what is Hobbes's version of a world without the state that I like to give students is Mad Max Fury Road. I think that really captures 
what he's getting at. And so to, uh, to briefly talk about what is Hobbes' solution to all of this, I don't want to spend a very, very long amount of time talking about specifically how Hobbes' state works in this episode. We might at some later point get more into that. But for now, I, I want to point out that Hobbes thinks of the monarch as someone who creates objectivity because if everyone agrees for Hobbes to suspend their judgment and defer to the judgment of the monarch, then instead of lots of different people each having their own view about who deserves what and who ought to get what, all of those different subjective positions that are based on lots of different individual people's experiences of the world and desires to do well and to not suffer— uh, if everyone is deferring to the same one person, then that one person's view of how things ought to be becomes uncontroversial. And so for Hobbes, the only way to get agreement, the agreement that you need for there to be order, is to have one person substitute for the objectivity that we don't otherwise have in ordinary human life. So for Hobbes, the, the king, the, the monarch, is a stand-in for that hive mind. And yeah, the monarch doesn't always care about everybody equally or as much as perhaps we would like. But you know, that's because the monarch is a separate person, a subjectively embodied person. But if everyone agrees to defer to that monarch, then there is at least some, something that unites people's judgments together instead of everybody coming to their own conclusions through their own analysis. And that's what Hobbes thinks ultimately leads people into those conflicts. So it's a kind of substitute for not having a hive mind. That's, that's the state for Hobbes. I guess so Hobbes preferred monarchies over other forms of government. He was okay with having a handful of people in an aristocracy or a uh, the people as a whole in a, form an assembly and that constitute the sovereign. But at the same time, uh, Benjamin's right that Hobbes preferred a monarch because for Hobbes, your leader is meant to be in a state, your representative. And it's more difficult for Hobbes to be represented by a number of people in an assembly uh, than it is to be uh, for the state to be represented just by one person um, in a monarch. Yeah, yeah. Because if you, if you think about it, for, for Hobbes, if the problem is subjectivism, if the problem is different people having different views and different feelings, then a monarch eliminates this in part because a monarch is singular and there's just one. Whereas for Hobbes, a legislature can become divided against itself. It can have divisions within it that metastasize into problems for the survival of the state, where it becomes unclear which part of the legislature actually speaks for the people. Uh, and, and for Hobbes, by the way, the, the people is, is not some kind of um, discrete external thing with an essence. There is no 
will of the people. The people mm. is, a, is a kind of fiction that is born from this fractious multitude of many, many different individuals and factions, all of which have very different views of, of reality. So Hobbes doesn't share that more contemporary notion of there being some kind of united people with a general will in the mm. Jean-Jacques Rousseau sense. Um, he doesn't have that kind of notion of a, a nation state in the uh, more contemporary uh, 19th and 20th century political theory sense. Mm. For Hobbes, people are so divided that the only way you can get any unity at all is to create a state which will create the unity. So for, for Hobbes, the state precedes the unity and not the other way around. Very often in democratic politics, people imagine that there's this demos, this unified entity, which then gives itself a constitution or creates a state. In the kind of Carl Schmitt sense, he, Carl Schmitt always imagines that there's a people that gives itself a constitution. For Hobbes, there can't be any unity in the people until the state exists, and then the state creates that unity. And so for, for Hobbes, anytime you have a legislature or an aristocracy or something like that, because there's multiple people involved, there is some potential that that unity will break down. And Hobbes is very concerned about that because Hobbes lived during the English Civil War and he thinks that conflict is really, really not on. Uh, he thinks it's really unpleasant and and he thinks that fear should motivate us. Hobbes thinks that fear is a good and acceptable motivator for people and that uh, we we ought to be afraid. Yeah, Hobbes is this brazen Leviathan. It is the unity of the representer not the unity of the represented that makes the person, the person of the state, one. And what Hobbes means by this is, I think exactly that, that there is no, for Hobbes, Rousseauian general will that precedes the, the state. It's only when you institute a state through every person contracting with every other person to nominate some sovereign or accept some particular sovereign uh, to represent the state, that's when you get the unity. Um, so yeah, there's no... that. Although Hobbes is often compared with, uh, with Schmidt, he didn't have that uh, friend-enemy dynamic working, even though... I guess that the state of nature is Hobbes's equivalent of that, um, some kind of conflict that the state needs to manage. But the difference is that Hobbes's conflict is something that's uh, not. It, yeah, it's not. It's uh, not between a group of friends and a group of enemies. Yeah. It's of all against all. It's yeah. much more fragmented than Schmidt's kind of conflict. Yeah. And he's also seen as a progenitor of a lot of the social contract theory. But as you can see, there's a there are major, major differences here because the, most of the later social contract theorists think that there is some set of criteria that the state is answerable to. And Hobbes thinks that prior to the state, there's so much conflict that you can't possibly hold the state to any, any pre-political standards, which is why for Hobbes, when the state does things you don't like, it's inconvenient. The word he loves to use is inconvenient. Uh, 
He does. He does leave some, however, some means for some uh, space for resisting the state. If the state undermines your own survival, if the state threat you know puts you in a position where you're going to die, uh, then you don't have to obey it, and only in in that circumstance. But uh, to to uh, you know, briefly, briefly, kind of finish up with Hobbes and, and move into Plato for for now. The the major moving piece here is the subjectivity, because the subjectivity is the way that Hobbes tries to cure it. He tries to get rid of the subjectivity by having the state create an artificial objectivity. The state, he, at one point, he describes it as a mortal god. The state is a kind of stand-in for God. Uh, but... When we look at at other political theorists later on, most political theorists are not as interested in fear as Hobbes is. And so they'll be reluctant to support a monarchy for that reason. They'll say there are other things that we can get if we have alternative systems of government that are more valuable than the certainty we'll have that there won't be a civil conflict. So... While most political theorists you know, will, will take a different view that isn't so fear-oriented, one thing that does tend to be true is that most later political theorists, and certainly most earlier political theorists, still think you need a state, and still think that there's at least some scope, some purpose in being afraid. They may not take it as far, but they think that there's some basis for being afraid of what happens if the social order breaks down. And you know, as, as Max Weber calls it, a, a responsibility, an ethic of responsibility to not let that happen. Because a failed state is not a nice place in which to live. And of course, the amount that people permit fear into their theories varies. Perhaps at some point later on, we'll talk about Gandhi. Gandhi doesn't think that fear has any place at all in any human decisions or human actions. And that's, that's the kind of opposite position. But most students, when they look at Gandhi, they go, I, I can't buy that. Uh, and if, if you can't buy no scope for fear, then you do have to start admitting some of these Habesian arguments into your thinking. And so I, I think it's very difficult to wholesale reject Hobbes. And a lot of people think they have, but they haven't. There, there are still some Habesian premises that they would concede, whether it's scarcity or subjectivism or natural equality in the sense that everyone's got some offensive capability, the problems with language. A lot of these things are difficult to argue with. And if you think any of those premises are true and you want to get somewhere that isn't where Hobbes goes, you've got to figure out where is it that I disagree and where else do I want to go? Is it that I think that that we ought to endure some risk of there being civil conflict or violence because I, I, I'm afraid of the end of the world, but I'm not that afraid of it such that I'm going to submit to a really miserable social order. Is that the argument? Or do we, do we think that some of this stuff can be overcome to some degree or other? There are certainly some people who think that we don't live in a world that's as constrained by scarcity as Hobbes thinks. There are some people who think that we're more empathic and more capable of solidaristic behavior than Hobbes thinks. But those are tough cases to make. So if you if you want to push back against Hobbes, you've got to really dig in and go, where precisely in this account do I disagree? And of course, Hobbes was not the first person to argue that we needed a state, although he argues for it with a lot of precision. Plato 
makes an argument for the state, uh, or at least I interpret it as an argument for the state. Some people interpret it as a satirical argument against there being a state, as a kind of a hidden hidden doctrine. But we'll, we'll give you the, the straight version, and you can decide for yourself. So the setup here is, is in the Republic, Plato, uh, Plato is having Socrates, who is always Plato's main character, talk to Glaucon. And Socrates is talking about uh, the ideal city, a city of justice. And, and Socrates describes a city that is totally egalitarian and uh, you know, seem, seemingly very, very nice. But Glaucon is not satisfied by this city. He calls it a city of pigs. He says that it's a place where there's no luxury, where people can't live nice lifestyles, you know, where everybody has to spend all their time gathering food. And isn't that miserable? That's no way for a human being to live. That's like living like an animal, like living like a pig to Glaucon. And so uh, Glaucon says, I want a city where people don't have to live like pigs, where people can live like human beings. And at that point, Socrates says, oh boy, Glaucon, well, we're going to have to do a lot of messed up stuff to make that happen. And then he describes this, this city called Callipolis, Plato's kind of ideal utopian city for, for actual people. And some people think that the message in the book is that actually the city of pigs is great and we should just settle for the city of pigs. But I don't think that's the case. I think that Plato is really saying here that if we were like animals, we could live more easily. But because we have more desires for other kinds of things, it's very difficult. And you see a similar kind of argument from Aristotle, who, of course, was uh, around at the same time as Plato, who in the physics makes the point that the Egyptians were the first people to be truly free. Because for Aristotle, the Egyptians discovered slavery, which is a very strange argument to modern ears and a very uh, disturbing argument to anybody who opposes slavery and thinks that getting rid of you know, slavery is emancipatory, which I would hope is most of the people listening, I would hope. Um, but you know why why do why do they say things like this? I think that the ancients talk this way because for them, uh, and you, you see a bit of it coming from Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle thinks that to develop the virtues and to be a good person, we need time to think and read and study and talk to each other. And Plato in the dialogues is often talking about the importance of, of philosophical discussion, people getting together and just talking and asking each other questions and using that Socratic method and, and ruthlessly interrogating each other. But how do they eat? How do they have shelter? How do they take care of their basic needs? Well, the way that they enjoy these luxuries is that they enslave and subjugate other people, and those people provide for those basic needs. And that creates the leisure time that is then necessary for these people to, in their view, cultivate the virtues. And so this argument that they have, it's, it's a disturbing argument that the ancients have for subjugation because the ancients think that you can't be free unless you own slaves, that freedom is a zero-sum game and it involves taking other people's time so that you can have more for yourself. 
And when we talk about that, I think a lot of people think that that has gone away or that we don't live in a world where that goes on anymore because we don't have property ownership slavery, you know, chattel slavery of the kind that existed in the ancient world. But if you think about it in terms of time and the distribution of time, there's quite a lot of that still today where some people have their time taken away from them so that other people can have more free time, so that other people can do things like go to universities and do podcasts and listen to podcasts and so on. Uh, we are all taking some time here to do stuff that is not about meeting the basic needs of life. And we're only able to do that because other people have uh, put their time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears into doing that, not just now, but in previous generations, getting us to a point where we have the technology that we have that enables us to live the way we do. And and today, contemporarily, with the how much we all, as members of you know, the university, you know, professional class, if, if you're one of us, um, live off of the blood, sweat, and tears of, of working people, both in our own countries and around the world in, in sweatshops. And so for, for Plato, we end up needing this hierarchy because we want to live lives that we can't live without the help of other people. And because other people don't give that help willingly, it's taken from them by subjugating them and enslaving them. Mm. And a lot of people are, don't want to believe that the ancients could make these kinds of arguments. And they try to say, well, really what they're saying is that we shouldn't want this hierarchical society. We should instead have some kind of nice city of pigs where we all live in, um, in, in an egalitarian, more primitivist kind of society. But uh, honestly, Plato and Aristotle value discussion and, and doing philosophy more than anything else, and they make that very clear. And the only way you could have time to do those things with ancient technology in particular is by making other people serve you. And so they, they have uh, a very sharp notion of inequality. They think that some people are definitely better than others or higher status than others. Uh, but the way that they make that distinction is different from the way that Hobbes makes the distinction. So oftentimes people say, well, Hobbes thinks that people are equal and Plato doesn't. But the sense in which Hobbes is talking about equality and the sense in which Plato is talking about equality are a bit different because... Plato is talking about the ability of different groups of people to do philosophy and to benefit from philosophy. And Hobbes is talking about whether or not you can kill somebody. Plato might readily concede that we're equal in Hobbes's sense. <laughs> and Hobbes might readily concede that we're unequal in Plato's sense. The, the notion of equality that they're using is, is a bit different. Mm. Though Hobbes's idea of equality applied as much to uh, mental abilities as it did to physical abilities because Hobbes as an empiricist thought that uh, the way we acquired knowledge was through prudence, through observing the world and all that you need to do to get knowledge in a way for Hobbes perhaps is to 
be a good observer and be a good learner, which means just putting time in things. Right. I think there is an argument that there that you could draw that link between them, but also lean into the notion that Hobbes really is saying that there is perhaps an equal ability of people to become philosophers if they mm. have the time. And in that that uh, sense, in that area, Hobbes is more like Aristotle than Plato because Aristotle has a more empiricist um, epistemology. And that's why for Aristotle, yeah. it's so much about yeah. just having the time to get the education that you need and to cultivate the virtues. And it's very much, very much focused for Aristotle around having enough time. Whereas for Plato, while time plays a role, as evidenced by this point about the city of pigs, there's a lot of emphasis on just having the kind of soul that can do all of this. Now, Plato does say, he, he describes something called the myth of the metals, where he says we should tell everybody. This isn't true, he says. This is a lie. But we should tell everybody they have three different kinds of souls, each made of a different metal and each suited to a different purpose. And that justice is everybody doing the social role that corresponds with their metal and not meddling in the social roles of other people with other metals. Now, Plato says that this is a myth that we don't have souls made of different kinds of metals, and this is just a story we should tell people to preserve the social order. But it gets it at, uh, at Plato's belief that there are real fundamental differences in people's level of abilities that cannot be made up by just giving them time to work on it. Uh, some people for Plato just are never going to be able to figure it out. Yeah. Whereas Hobbes is very clear in his uh, determinism that we are all, uh, in a sense, microcosms of what the state is. Because the state for Hobbes, as we talked about, is a kind of robot. It's programmed by people who authorise a sovereign to represent the person of the state. And so the state takes in a load of inputs and it churns out outputs. And that's kind of what people are, uh, what natural people are, um, just in a way which involves consciousness and having actual brains too. Um, whereas the state, we imagine that it has a mind, but it doesn't literally have um, the body uh, that you see on the on the front cover to his book Leviathan, um, but but uh, I, the point I'm getting at is that for Hobbes, uh, it's precisely because we are all um, predetermined by these uh, Newtonian forces, these motions and uh, commutations of motion that Hobbes thinks is what basically um, the universe is all about. That's why um, that de that determinism is linked to his notion that we are all naturally equal. All that you need is just to put um, plug people with the right time and the right information, and out will come information, and out will come learning and philosophy. All that you need is prudence. All that you need is uh, time. But yeah, for Plato, uh, some people. Uh, genuinely have souls which are attuned towards uh, 
reason, whereas others have souls which are um, attuned more towards um, passion and desire. And and also a middle group is that the, is attuned yeah. toward honor loving and status uh, seeking. Yeah, you've yeah. got a group that that yeah, wants to just kind of hedonistically satisfy itself. A group that wants to be well thought of and well liked and and well honored. And a group that thinks for itself. That's how Plato kind of divides it up. Yeah. And and those are the three parts yeah. of the soul, as well as the three parts of the city. For yeah, Plato. yeah, and you can also see the sharp contrast in the way that Plato thinks about the forms. Plato thinks that. All of the physical uh, objects of the world and, and all of the human concepts even that we have are imitations of the real that exists on an abstract plane that is fundamentally inaccessible to us. And he thinks that the world of appearances or the, the sensible world, the sensory world, that it lies to us, that it, it, tell, it gives us information that doesn't give us the whole truth and misleads us about all kinds of different things. And so... Whereas for, for Hobbes, uh, it's kind of input comes in and input comes out, output comes out, and th- those inputs and outputs <laughs> are all real and all connected to something that is real. For Plato, the input that's coming in through empiricism is highly unreliable, deeply suspect, cannot be trusted, and the question is, are you someone who's able to do the philosophy that's necessary to get beyond the empiricism and to see the things that are purely rational? And that's an ability some people have if they're smart and other people don't have. So that, that, that is uh, where you, you see a little bit of that sharper difference in the natural equality versus inequality stuff. Mm. Well, I yeah. do think it's it's often overdrawn because it's not as if Hobbes is saying everybody yeah. has precisely the same level of ability to hurt everybody else. Hobbes would readily concede to you no. that some people are big and strong yeah. and other people are small yeah. and weak. And he might also concede that in the intellectual realm. The difference is that it, 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 for Plato, it's a very sharp distinction. There are categories mm. and classes of people with fundamentally different levels of ability. And at some points, Aristotle also seems to make these kinds of arguments when Aristotle talks about natural slaves versus natural masters, some people as having by their nature's uh, slave mentalities, which Aristotle uses to try to rationalize the uh, position of the slaves is as really in the slave's own interests. That's what Aristotle tries to say, that there isn't some better free life for them. They couldn't have done the philosophy anyway. Uh, and yet that comes alongside an argument that what people need is education and, and leisure to cultivate the virtues. And those arguments do seem to pull a little bit in tension with each other. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that about Aristotle. Um I think for the ancients, it's quite difficult to think to for Aristotle to uh, start talking about what it would mean to give everybody time to do uh, or have the ability to do uh, the kind of stuff that Aristotle and Plato would like people to do. Because, of course, technology is uh, a lot less advanced than today. So... Uh, it's almost out of the question. Uh, and perhaps that's why it didn't seem to have occurred to Aristotle or Plato that someday people could have the choice. Um, 
for them, it's just inevitable that you need slavery in order to have philosophy. Yeah, it's hard for us to imagine because we're all thoroughly products of an industrial world that changes rapidly. Living in a time where it doesn't feel like things change very rapidly, where technology doesn't really move, and where things seem as likely to decline as they are to improve, uh, in, in that kind of world, it's much harder to imagine these science fiction utopias than it is for us. Yeah. And so you don't see in the ancient world that same uh, kind of, uh, often often we associate it with Marxism or with science fiction, those images of a post-scarcity world created by intense industrialization uh, and cyber, cyber tech and, and other kinds of things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite ironic, actually, that it is through... Uh, technological development that some people say nowadays that we could get to a stage where people could have the choice whether they want to be a, a philosopher or a farmer or whatever they want to be they could be given that choice and not be coerced in particular into particular roles it's quite ironic that the way we've got to a stage where that might be on the horizon um is through fast technological development and lots and lots of change. But for the, uh, for the ancients, and especially for the pre-Socratics, um, change is what the universe is all about. And Plato reacted to the pre-Socratics, um, people like Thales 200 years before Plato, who said that the universe is change and that the fundamental uh, material from which stuff springs is water and that the universe unlike Hobbes's mechanistic dom one domino falling after another for Thales it's more like a flow and the universe is a flow of change um, not separate distinct events happening one after the other but a f uh, an unstoppable flow for Plato, this is something that's bad um, and it's something that we need to escape from. Um, so not only did Plato have this very hierarchical attitude about uh, society and about nature, but he also thought that it's not through change that you can uh, get away from this. It's actually through some kind of apprehension of permanent, enduring philosophical truth that you can escape from this. Yeah, yeah. Plato writes very negatively about the cycle of regimes where one kind of city decays necessarily and inevitably into another kind of city. For Plato, change is a mm. process of degradation. Yeah. And that's why Plato, Plato often cautions that and even someone who tried to implement his ideal city would be hard-pressed to actually preserve it over a very long period of time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's why he's got this absolutely um, wild and rigorous training program that he sets up for uh, the the people who guard the city, the the guardians who um, live in kind of communal arrangements without families somehow, um, but live in this. Um, their own little distinct community where they share everything. 
and they train all the time. Um, but they're not individually happy because they're just training to make sure that they can defend the city. Um, but the point for Plato isn't that they're individually happy. The point is that the city is happy and that when the city's happy, that's the route towards some kind of philosophical happiness for perhaps the philosophical class and perhaps for other citizens too. But I think that's quite obscure how, how Plato's state or whether Plato's state is actually best for everyone at the time. Because and Part of it um, is that we as modern yeah. people have, uh, tend to have a liberal notion of happiness, which has got a, a lot to do with utilitarianism and John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham. Oh, yeah. So we think yeah. when, when people are happy, that's a place where people get what they want. A lot of students, when, when we do Plato, they, they think that happiness is getting what you desire or what you want. And Plato expressly says that people who make their decisions on the basis of desire are you know, the bronze souls, the, the very lowest kind of people. And that mm. a person who is a just person and the best kind of person often does not do what they desire to do. And a society in which everyone does what they desire to do would be deeply, deeply repellent to Plato, which is a way in which Plato yeah. very much stands in sharp contrast to our own time. In addition to his hatred of democracy, Plato also really, really does not like the idea that you should live your life just doing whatever it is that you want. Mm. Um, Plato thinks that's a very, very low and, and vulgar way to live. So for Plato, you should be keeping those desires in check. And you know the honor-loving, status-loving people, those people keep their desires in check by thinking, well, would everyone else approve of this? Would I be <laughs> yeah. well honored for doing these things? And Plato thinks those people are significantly better than the, the hedonists. He thinks that those people could run a, a democracy, a city governed by the honor lovers, and that that wouldn't mm. be the best kind of city, but it would be a heck of a lot better than a democracy in his view. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. the people who he really thinks ought to run things are the people who are interested in pursuing the good and the true for their own sake, apart from whether or not those things result in them getting to do stuff that they desire to do. So a lot of the subjectivist contemporary moral philosophies that argue you should do what you desire to do, those, those would be very, very anathema to Plato. And he would see that as a kind of sophistry that has run way, way off the rails from what he takes true philosophy to be. Mm. One analogy that Plato has is that of uh, a mythical or imagined uh, charioteer with... Uh, which represents the soul or the three parts of the city where you have a charioteer trying to um, guide two horses, um, a light horse and a dark horse, where the charioteer represents the rational part of the soul. The light horse represents the... Um, this part of the soul which is about courage and pursuing recognition and the dark horse is desire that's the um that's the bit pursuing um materialist uh, preferences for pleasure um that's the utilitarian bit 
Um, and what the charity has got to do is that they've got to, in some way, um, keep these horses in balance because this chariot flies. And what the chariot's got to do is trying to get these this chariot to the sky so that he can perceive the truth, which is above the clouds. Uh, but every so often, um, the the dark horse desire will lead them off course and they will catch a glimpse of the truth above the clouds and then, then they will tumble back to earth and the charioteer will need to get it all going again. And that's what, uh, that's for Plato, uh, what we are. We are, um, we are souls imprisoned in these material bodies trying to see what it's like above the clouds. But in order to do so, in order to pursue the truth, at least for uh, the philosophical class, for Plato, you've got to balance these. And if if desire, if the preference satisfying bit goes too far, then th- th- then you're not going to get there. Um, and he doesn't tell you to kill the, the horses. Yeah. He tells you to, to get them in oh, line no, no, no. and use them to pull you up there. You need them to pull you yeah, up yeah, yeah. there. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think. And one of the things that's remarkable about this is that so much of Plato's argument for why we need a state you know, so that we can have this hierarchy that's necessary so that people can pursue philosophy. Uh, it's about truth pursuit. It's about trying to get at what is actually true. And for Hobbes, it was all about fear. It was all about not dying. <laughs> mm. Plato is not giving you an argument that otherwise we're all going to die. He's saying this is the only way we can get to truth. Yeah. And so when uh, someone looks at Gandhi, for instance, Gandhi argues that we don't need all of this hierarchy to get to truth. And we don't need all of this free time to get to truth. And uh, Gandhi's very resistant to all of that. Plato thinks that truth itself is only attainable through the state. And, yeah. and that truth is an external, objective, eternal truth. For Hobbes, truth is created by the state because you, you are creating objectivity by bringing the state into being. For Plato, the state is a mechanism for getting truth, and truth is something that is out there and external. So you see the different relationship to truth here. For Hobbes, there is no objective truth while we're all subjectively embodied. And the only way to get something which provides a semblance of that is to create a state to stand in for the truth that is inaccessible to us because we're all embodied, because we're not unified into one person by biology, by nature. We can't have one truth by biology, by nature, because Hobbes is an empiricist. So we create instead an artificial state that stands in for that, that stands in for God, that stands in for the good and and for the truth. For Plato, the state is a mechanism for pursuing a truth that exists independently of everything else. And so this notion of truth is something which is outside of politics, that politics either brings you toward or brings you further away from, is a very different way of of thinking about the relationship between politics and the truth from the relationship Hobbes creates. For Hobbes, the state creates the truth. For Plato, a good state will get you or get more people, not everybody, but more people, closer to the truth and give them an opportunity to do the philosophy that's necessary to get those glimpses of it. And a bad state will make it impossible for anyone to do this, and it will murder Socrates, just as the Athenian democracy eventually tells Socrates to kill himself. 
for corrupting the youth of Athens. Yes, by, by encouraging <laughs> them to pursue philosophy. Uh, and I think that's yeah. a, an underrated piece of Plato's theory. A lot of this is, okay, uh, I love Socrates. And early in my career, <laughs> I write a lot of Socrates fan fiction because I love him so much. And then the city of Athens murders Socrates, who I loved. He was the best. How could they do this? So now I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to come up with a city where Socrates can be himself and doesn't get murdered. Uh, and if you look at, into Plato's biography, he, he goes to the city of Syracuse and tries to educate the uh, brother of the tyrant initially to be a, a philosopher king so that Syracuse can become a place that's safe for philosophy. Well, what happens is that the current tyrant sees that Plato's hanging out with his brother a lot and gets concerned that they're up to something, that the brother has got offensive capability and might be plotting something against him. Uh, there's some Hibesian stuff there. Uh, and yeah. he sells Plato into slavery. And then Plato's friends have to buy him and set him free. And Plato, after that experience, goes, okay, I think the problem is that I tried to do it with the nephew. Let me try to do it with his son instead, because the tyrant intends for the son to inherit. So he goes back and tutors the tyrant's son, and some years go by, and it becomes clear that it's not working out. The, tyrant, uh, the tyrant's son doesn't have the right kind of soul for Plato's teaching. And Plato goes, yeah, I, I, I tried, but I don't feel this is working out. I'd like to leave. And the tyrant's son goes, no, you're going to stay and teach me how to be a good person. And he locks Plato up <laughs> and forces Plato to teach him how to be good. And eventually Plato, Plato gets away and, and he escapes and he writes a dialogue very late in his life called The Laws, which is a very pessimistic, sad dialogue where Plato says, just, just, just obey the city and don't make trouble. <laughs> That's the way to survive, Socrates. Just follow the law and don't make any trouble. And a lot of people make the argument that the laws is a more realistic book and the Republic is intended to be more idealist. But I, I don't think that's true. I think those are written at different points in Plato's life. And The Republic was you know, a book about trying to do something about the conditions that led to Socrates' demise. And The Laws is, is admitting that you, that at least in Plato's case, he couldn't. So maybe Socrates should have just been a little bit quieter. <laughs> and not drawn so much attention. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, we've we've come to about an hour. Any final thoughts, Edmund? I think we've covered a lot of the bases. I think that we've given the listeners certainly a bit of a picture of why both Hobbes and Plato thought that a state was necessary and inevitable if you want to escape from fear for Hobbes, or at least from the, the kind of fear that he thinks is really dangerous, and escape from ignorance and um, material um, primitivity for Plato. Um, and for Plato, ignorance is the root and stem of every evil. Yeah. So for Plato, yeah. you create a very hierarchical society that involves slavery to escape from ignorance, which is evil. Yeah. I think there is one tension that some people draw out, that Plato thinks that philosophers shouldn't just do philosophy, 
they should also do politics. And there's a question about, does that draw them away from doing philosophy all day? Yes. And, to be a philosopher king. And, and that gets us into the relationship between what is, what is the relationship between politics and morality. And Aristotle yeah. spends a lot of time trying to unpack that and, and get it this kind of oscillating relationship in which sometimes the philosophers have to do politics so that they can perpetuate the circumstances under which philosophy can be done, and also so that they can exercise the virtues. Because if you're just contemplating, if you're just cultivating the virtues, you don't get to exercise them. And politics is the arena in which that stuff is exercised. But one of the great, great tensions within Aristotle and within readings of Aristotle are some people who read him as very much a proponent of contemplation, viewing politics as this necessary evil that we sometimes have to go do so that we can continue to contemplate. And at other points, uh, viewing uh, the, the case that man is, as Aristotle puts it, a political animal and needs to do politics to exercise those virtues. And he, he makes the case that anyone who could live outside of a city is either a beast or a god, uh, either someone who is content to just go around tr- collecting what they need to, to survive, a beast, or mm. someone who doesn't need anything to survive because they exist on a plane that's beyond the physical, like a god. Mm. Uh, and, and so I think I get, uh, that gets at some of this. Maybe, maybe Aristotle would like us to contemplate all the time, but that would be to be a god, and we are not gods. We have to exercise those virtues. And maybe uh, Plato would, would imagine, who would a man be without the horses? Who would, who would the rider be without the rest of the chariot? A god, mm. perhaps, if you could have such yeah. a being. But we are not gods. We, we need horses to see the truth. We need to eat and, and drink and, and do these things so that we can go on living. And if we don't do those things, we're not going to be able to think about this stuff. Yeah. So there is Which a is real... sad for Plato yeah, in Plato's view. Yeah, I think sad for Plato. But it is a, a real concession to the real. And I think what both Plato and Hobbes have in common is that they see the real world as as containing within it certain fundamental basic constraints that are very, very difficult to get around. Stuff like scarcity and subjectivity, uh, stuff like the fact that we got to eat, the fact that we need somebody to set us up with the things we need to spend our time thinking about stuff. Um, Mm. these These are the fundamental constraints of that world. And it's easy now that we live in a modern world with a lot of technology to go, this is just really morally disgusting. And much of it is, is very disturbing. But also, they didn't have the technology that we have. And so they're looking at it and going, well, the only other way we could live would be to live outside a city in a, a more traditional, egalitarian, tribal society. And when they look at that, they go, well, the problem with those societies is that they're not competitive with city-states. If you are trying to live a village life near an ancient Greek city-state, that ancient Greek city-state is going to try to enslave you. And that ancient Greek city-state is going to have better weapons and tools than you because it's got a group of people who sit around all day being taken care of by slaves, thinking of ways to make better weapons and tools. 
And so you're going to have a hard time competing with a Greek city-state that's focused on, on trying to enslave as many people as possible to create as much free time for a ruling elite as possible. And for that reason, you're, you're doubly unlikely to remain free if you try to live outside a city-state because, for one, you aren't going to have any free time to do philosophy, which means you're a slave to nature. And for two, you're not going to be in a, a community that is able to preserve its own freedom from being physically enslaved by other people. So for Plato and, and Aristotle, there was no alternative to joining or creating one of these slaveholding ruling elites, because if you're not in one, then you're subjugated by one and you're subjugated by nature. And it's only recently that human beings have started to think, hey, what if, what if we can live in other ways that aren't like that? You know, what, if, what if it's really possible for human beings to get beyond the constraints of those conditions? And so when we're thinking about trying to build better societies that aren't like the societies of the past, we have to think about you know, what are those fundamental constraints and how do you overcome them? How do you get around them? And so I think there's a lot of value in reading Plato and, and Hobbes, uh, you know, not just for people who want to run states and, and like hierarchy, but also for people who want a better world, because these are the constraints, the very real, very serious, very difficult constraints that we have to find a way around if we want to build better societies. And they need to be taken seriously, because if we don't take them seriously, then we end up in the position of, of the people who lived outside those city-states just getting attacked and assaulted and abused by the city-states that we refuse to join. Mm. And taking the constraint seriously doesn't mean it's necessary to in any way accept the kind of states that Hobbes and Plato uh, think would be best. I think that there are a lot of ways in which conditions today are a lot different from the kind of material, the kind of ideational conditions that there were in Hobbes's day and in Plato's day. So accepting some of those conditions or constraints around politics that might uh, be similar doesn't mean we have to accept their conclusions about what kind of states are needed precisely because a lot of conditions, a lot of other conditions have changed, even if there are some constraints that have remained fairly similar. Yeah, yeah. We, we can try to find, insofar as it's possible under the conditions under which we live, ways of overcoming these constraints. Uh, and the trick is to find genuine, real ways of overcoming them so that we can have societies that, that can last uh, while at the same time having societies that are worth living in. It's that tension always between having an order that can survive and having an order that's worth living in. And the willingness of other political theorists to challenge people like Hobbes and Plato and go, hey, wait a minute, the society that you're talking about, it's not worth living in. It's too miserable. It's too awful. There's too much exploitation and subjugation. We have to be able to do better than this. That forces us to, to try. And it's, it's important to try. Yeah. And one way of trying is trying to find ways of doing politics that don't necessarily concentrate power in the 
few people that Hobbes and Plato thought should hold power. Um, and pretty soon in either the next episode or the episode after, we're hoping to talk about um, people like Aristotle. And then a lot later, um, Benjamin Constant, who um, Aristotle with mixed with uh, aristocracies and Constant with um, democracies or proto-democratic states, thinking about ways of doing politics that don't concentrate power in the way that Hobbes and Plato thought you needed con to concentrate power. Um, yeah, well, at the same think, time, thinking yeah. very much about the circumstances that led Plato and Hobbes to decide that that was necessary. And, sure. And that's, I yeah. think, what's really fun about when we get into Constant and, and some of that stuff are the ways that the people who have taken this stuff seriously try to deal with it and the difficulties they face and, and the efforts they put in to overcome those difficulties. And, and we'll get into some of mm. that stuff in the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps when looking at Hobbes, Plato and other political theorists, it's useful to look at the contrasts, but it's also worth looking at ways in which both freedom from uh, violence in Hobbes's case and freedom to pursue truth in Plato's case might both be worth um, acknowledging as valid grounds for states. And just as in moral philosophy, there have been lots of moves recently by people like Derek Parfit to climb the mountain um, up which different theories and different theorists have been climbing. Perhaps in political philosophy, there might be a way of climbing that political mountain, of taking the different perspectives and acknowledging that perhaps we're not trying to do totally separate things. We might all be trying to climb up the same political mountain just from different angles. And that might be one fruitful perspective of reconciling some of these perspectives, even if at first they might look contradictory. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why over the course of this show, we'll be talking about a lot of very, very different stuff. And we'll be juxtaposing a lot of stuff together. And we will be acknowledging the places where there are differences, but also talking uh, about how things can be combined in unusual ways. And I think that will be a bit of a treat for you guys if you stick around mm. and it's up to you yeah. uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this first one i've i've enjoyed doing it uh, i've enjoyed it yep <laughs> we'll we'll do more so thank you guys for listening we are going to be uh, on soundcloud for sure and hopefully on youtube before too long and perhaps other places oh. if there's uh, agitation for that I'm not I'm not the most tech savvy person in the world, but we'll we'll put it places where you can find it. Uh, and we're doing it pro bono. You don't have to go get on a Patreon or something like that. Uh, all of it is going to be main feed, freely available to everybody at the point of use. And a lot more equal than Hobbes's and Plato's uh, <laughs> utopias, perhaps maybe. <laughs> perhaps maybe. If listening to if listening to podcasts is your utopia. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, Podcast Kallipolis. Welcome to Podcast Kallipolis. All the podcasts are freely available to everybody. Okay. 
yeah. uh, thank you guys. That, that This has been fun. I uh, hope you've enjoyed, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.